Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well-known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another edition or interview of Moving to Live. Today, we've got another physician that we're interviewing. This will be the third physician that we've interviewed for Moving to Live, and I think all of them exemplify what Moving to Live is all about. Movement is part of what makes your life complete. We're fortunate enough to have Dr. Philip Skiba with us today. He is the longtime owner and founder of Fizz Farm, which we'll talk about, and he is also the director of sports medicine for Advocate Aura Healthcare in the Chicago area. And a final thing that he is was involved with or is involved with, which I think will be interesting to talk about in the latter part of the interview, it was he was involved with the project last year to attempt to have somebody run a sub-two-hour marathon. For those of you who are runners, they just missed out, became very, very close, and I think he'll have some interesting insights on that. Dr. Skiba, thank you for joining Moving to Live for an interview this morning. Hey, thanks for having me, Ben. I think the first question that I always like to get out of the way for Moving to Live is kind of a brief bio in your own words. So if you're seeing somebody uh, professionally, maybe at a conference or you're out and about and they say, well, Dr. Skiba, what do you do? What's your reply to them? You know, I, I wear a few different hats. Um, you know, I direct sports medicine for Advocate Aurora Healthcare. Um, and that takes a, a large chunk of my time because I'm taking care of, you know, not just athletes, but, um, you know, I take care of little old ladies who want to work in their garden. Um, I take care of, uh, uh, you know, same way I care, take care of little six or, se- little six or seven year old gymnasts. Um, and uh, I also run the human performance lab for advocate. And so what that means is in addition to testing, you know, Kenyan marathon runners, I test, um, you know, children with uh, congenital heart defects that need to go to surgery um, or, uh, or, or people with lung cancer who are going to lose a lung and want to see if they can tolerate the surgery. Um, so my medical life is actually quite varied in and of itself. Um the other part of my life as, as a physiologist and a, and a coach and, and sort of elite sports consultant um, is I develop mathematical equations that allow you to target performance in different ways. Um, I like to call this performance engineering. And the idea behind that world is using um, 
really nicely developed mathematical tools to understand the athlete more fully. Whereas the typical coach may take many years to really understand what works and doesn't work for an athlete. Um, I've developed ways to figure that out much more quickly, which is really useful. For example, if you're trying to break the two hour marathon and you've only got six months to do it. And I'm correct from reading your bio. I have this advantage. Not only do you have a medical degree, but you also have a doctorate in exercise physiology, which came first. Uh, I got my medical degree first. And I was out in practice as a sports doctor and, and, and coaching and doing that kind of work for a couple of years. Um, and I just realized that um, to really have the level of precision I wanted to have with the tools I was developing, um, I, I really needed to, to, to spend some time and just do some of the hard science. And so I uh, got in touch with uh, you know, Andy Jones at the University of Exeter in the UK since they already worked on a lot of this stuff. Um, and he's arguably, you know, one of the best physiologists of his generation. And, and I said, you know, Hey, you know, I'm interested in taking a sabbatical and working on some, some, some pretty neat stuff. And it was kind of a natural thing because I was already working for British triathlon using these tools to help their athletes in the run up to the 2012 Olympics. Um, so it all kind of worked out. So I took a, a sabbatical to the university of Exeter, I ended up running their sports medicine program for several years. Um, and then there is really where we kind of really polished these things up and, uh, um, and, uh, and it made them, uh, and made them ready for prime time. Most of the people that we've interviewed for moving to live are atypical. And I say that in a good way. And I think what you've just described as atypical. I want to delve into it a little more. The ethos mm -hmm. and the people that we interview for moving to live all make movement a priority. So growing up, where did you grow up and were you an active person or was it when you got to college or maybe even medical school that you realized that movement was an important thing and something that you were interested in? Well, you know, as a kid, it was just kind of natural. You know, I was the oldest of six kids. My mom did not have the, you know, the time or inclination to drive me anyplace. I grew up in a small town in New York of about 8,000 people about, I don't know, you know, an hour and a half north of Manhattan. So, um, you know, I had to either ride my bike or take my skateboard everywhere. Um, that, that's just how I got around. Um, and so it was just natural to do that. Um, it didn't really occur to me to, to, to get in the car. Um, and so, you know, it's just, it's just funny growing up in that environment. And then my summers were spent, my grandparents had a house on the beach in, in New Jersey. And so I spent my summers, you know, uh, surfing and swimming and playing volleyball and lifeguarding. And, um, you know, it was, uh, so it was a really nice way to grow, grow up and it was always, uh, you know, so, so, so movement and, and, and that kind of thing. Movement is a natural part of life um, rather than a quote-unquote structured workout. What um, was always a thing for me, um, you know. I, and then you know, doing that, um, I, I mean, I always, you know, I always had you know, sort of delusions of grandeur about sports, but I was a terrible athlete. Um, <laughs> that, that, that's just the truth. And, and the real reason I, I got into the field I got into was because I was so bad. You know, I was a, I'm, I'm a cancer survivor and, and I ended up making this list of all the things I wanted to do before I kicked off, you know, and, when it turned out that, you know, I was actually going to be fine. Um, you know, my father said some very wise words to me. He said, you know, you, you've got this list now. Um, and you just learned that life isn't a dress rehearsal. Hang on to that list. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things I'd always wanted to do was do a triathlon. And, uh, so I started in medical school. I started training with, uh, some guys who were former pro cyclists and, and pro triathletes and things. And I was getting my butt kicked. I mean, constantly. It wasn't even funny. And I just said, there's got to be an easier way to do this. And so one of my mentors, Bill Sexton, who's an ex exercise physiologist at, uh, at Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine, said, here's the stuff you ought to start reading. And it was a lot of, it was, I mean, some of it was just basic physiology. And then some of it was some of the modeling studies that I would end up going on to, 
to author in that field later. And uh, so it improved me a lot. I mean, which I was still slow, but I was much less slow than I used to be. Um, you know, but it turned out that these things work really well for good athletes. And that's kind of how I made my name for myself. I think what's interesting, I have the advantage of being able to read a brief bio sheet that you fill out beforehand. And one of the things I always am interested in is most unusual or difficult uh, movement activity that somebody's done in the past and would you do it again? And you're somebody who's essentially made your name with endurance athletes and you have done as many other coaches and athletes have done an Ironman and included with that, you said you have no desire to do that again. And I think that's interesting <laughs> because so many people, if they're a runner, the goal is to run a marathon, even though maybe some people are not well suited to run a marathon. If you're a triathlete, triathlete, at least an amateur triathlete, it's kind of like there's two segments. If you've done an Ironman, it's like, oh, you're in the club. And if you haven't done the Ironman, it's like, oh, well, that's nice. And yeah. it shouldn't be that way because I think you could probably agree with me and even expound more. Doing well in an Olympic distance triathlon is probably as physiologically difficult, if not more, than in an Ironman. Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on what you mean by difficult. You know, in one case, you're sort of, you know, you race an Olympic distance triathlon. You're trying to give it everything you've got. Um, Ironman is a, is a torture test, you know, it, it just, how long, how long can you soldier on at a more, at a more pedestrian speed? Um, now I, I don't say that you know, flippantly. There are a lot of athletes that do Ironman very fast you know, relatively. I train a lot of them, including world champions. Um, but at, at, for the average person, for the average guy that signs up for an Ironman, um, you know, you know, that you're out there for a really long day. Um, and most people don't appreciate that. And I, I spend most of my time, honestly, talking people out of doing things like marathons and, and, uh, and triathlons, um, because it takes so long to truly physiologically prepare. I mean, I tell people that you need to train for five years just to be able to train appropriately for an Ironman. Um, and a lot of people don't want to hear that, but, but it's frankly the truth. It is a long day. It is a lot of exercise. Um, and, and frankly, my, uh, my practice is full of people that, you know, haven't really respected the distance um, and have gotten badly injured because of it. Do you see the same thing uh, with marathons since marathons have become so popular that you see many patients who maybe shouldn't be doing a marathon and because of the you know, popularity, they do it? Yeah, you know, the, the week before the, or the month before and the month after the Chicago Marathon, um, you know, probably accounts for half of my practice. <laughs> it's uh, so many people who just are doing really just um, just – uh, unwise things, you know, trying, trying to prepare, um, and, and, and really to their severe detriment. I mean, a couple of years ago, I saw someone who had three stress fractures the week before the race. Um, you know, and they said to me, Oh, but I got to do this race and I'm trying to get about it in their history. And this person had never done any running before the six months before this race, they just signed some people at work were going to do the marathon and they wanted to do it. Um, and it was one of these people who was quite physiologically gifted. Her VO2 max was, was really pretty good. Um, so she had the plumbing and that's the problem is that she had a Ferrari engine in a Volkswagen body. Um, and, uh, and, and just really ended up injuring herself badly because she was able to physiologically tolerate something that her, the actual nuts and bolts of her body were not prepared to do. I want to take a little bit of a step back. You had in your bio that you did an Ironman and don't want to do it again. Did you do one just to help you with your coaching and your medical practice so you knew what it entailed or just kind of was like, that? No, this was, uh, this was really, this was really part of that, that bucket list that I had written. 
Um, and uh, it was not a smart idea for a number of reasons. Number one, I'd only been doing triathlon for a couple of years. Um, but, but number two, um, you know, I was in medical school. I was working 100 to 110 hours a week. So, you know, my training was, you know, squeeze in a quick 2000 in the pool before I, uh, um, before I go start seeing patients at 6 a.m. Um, and then, you know, work all day and nine o'clock at night, you know, maybe get home and then sit on the trainer for two hours uh, and ride, you know, and so it was just a really silly way to try to prepare and then do some long stuff, you know, uh, on the weekends. And so, you know, being a long time, being a guy who grew up, I mean, I learned to swim about the same time I learned to walk. So for me, jumping in the water and swimming a couple miles from early childhood, I could do that. That wasn't a big deal for me. So I get out of the water on the day of the Ironman. I'm like, oh, this is a piece of cake. And I get on the bike and I start going. And, and even then, cycling's fine for me. You know, but about 90 miles in, I'm thinking, wow, I'm going to try and run a marathon now. And I've never run more than about, you know, 14 miles in training. Um, and that was not off the bike. <laughs> and so it just ended up being like a death march for me. And, uh, you know, by the end of that race, I mean, I finished, you know, three minutes to midnight. And I'm thinking, wow, this was an extraordinarily bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> My curiosity on that is, did you have that thought at some point on towards the end of the bike or the run that this is a pretty bad idea? Oh, on the bike for sure. I mean, I was, I was, I guess I was about mile 90. I was on, on some of the hills on the back end and I, I did Ironman Lake Placid. Ah, um, I have done that one. I, I know exactly where you're talking about. Yeah, right. <laughs> up, 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 you know, whatever it's called, baby bear, mama bear, papa bear, wherever those hills are. And I'm like, oh man, this, this is really a bad idea. And, uh, um, and so, yeah, so when I got off the bike and started running, you know, I was training with a bunch of guys from a pretty elite, a pretty elite team in New Jersey. And, uh, so they see me out on the run they're all cheering, thinking I'm coming in to finish the race. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, guys, this isn't even like, you know, this is the first lap. <laughs> and you just watch their faces go, Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, Looking good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Looking good. Keep it up. <laughs> so we step back a little farther from that. You described growing up. You sound, it sounds a lot. Uh, you're growing up with similar to mine. I grew up a little farther north in upstate New York, but it's kind of like, you know, I was eight or nine years old. And if there was little league practice, it's like, well, I rode my bike to little league practice because sure. that's what you did. Yeah. Now, now my parents would probably be arrested. But you finished high school. Did you? Were you active in sports in high school? Did you swim? Did you play football? Or just the typical active I, um, kid? It, because you know, I went to a regional high school, and because we were about 15 miles from school, it was hard for me to get into in, into sports. Um, and so, uh, so, but uh, interestingly, I you know, growing up on the beach, I had you know played in a lot of beach volleyball tournaments. Um, and so the coach of there was no men's team at my high school, but the coach of the women's team, who was also my typing teacher, um, says to me one day, you know, her name was Mrs. G. And she says, uh, you know, Skiba, I hear you can play volleyball. I'm like, yeah. You know, and she's like, you should come down and practice with my girls. I need someone who can hit against them. <laughs> so I, I kind of became the, you know, I just started like practicing with the women's team, <laughs> um, which as, as a high school guy is not a bad thing. No, <laughs> um, you know, so for a couple of years, I, I was down there, uh, you know, playing with them. And then, and then there was some, uh, there was, some, we developed a co-ed intramural squad eventually. Um, but, uh, so I did that and then that enabled me to walk onto my college team. Um, and so I, I did that for a season, but just, uh, you know, trying to do science and play in a band and all this other stuff. Like at that point, you know, uh, the volleyball kind of became a second uh, thing. And so by my sophomore year of college, I, I wasn't doing that anymore. And in college was, did you go into college knowing, I think I want to go to medical school after this, or did you go in? I like to tell everybody, 
I was a marine biology major until until I took a plant physiology class and realized I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I'd always considered um, you know medicine. I, you know, I, you know, in the family I grew up in, I come, I come from a, a sort of a traditional uh, Italian American family, and um, you know, b- becoming a professional is in some ways expected. Um, you know, my my dad is a is a dentist and a professor of dentistry at NYU. Uh, my uncle is a is an internationally renowned dentist. Um, it, it was just kind of like, this is the route you're going to go. Um, and so, but I, I was never really sure about that. Um, I, I've always taken, you know, if there's two paths to take in life, I always choose the hard one. Um, you know, I, I got out of, uh, you know, I, I was, so I was doing uh, science and I decided, uh, yeah, you know what? My dad's a dentist. I'm going to get into the family business. I actually started out my graduate career in a dental and PhD program. Um, so I was doing molecular genetics as my PhD and getting my, 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 you know, uh, doctor of dental medicine, uh, at the same time. And six months in, I realized I hated teeth. Uh, <laughs> this is not my thing, you know? And so my dad, I think was pretty bummed that I wasn't going to take over the practice. Um, but so I, I kept working in science. I eventually, you know, it was about this time that I was diagnosed with cancer. And so, um, th- at this, so at this, at this period of time, I'm like in a lot of period of transition, and so I ended up leaving with my master's and going to medical school uh, simply because, you know, I, I had a lot of experiences there that made me realize I, I could do better at this than a lot of people. Um, you know, I'd met a terrible radiologist who, uh, you know, was one of the guys who, who first found my tumor, who was just no bedside matter, just a, a complete, a complete obnoxious human being. Um, and then I had this incredible urologist who was my surgeon, who was just, you know, very much can do, we're going to beat this, you know damn the torpedoes kind of guy. Um, and so in that experience, I was like, you know what, this is probably the road for me. And that's why I ended up you know, transitioning into medicine. So you go to medical school, you finish medical school. And I know some of our listeners are not familiar with physicians. I've talked with uh, Dr. Gary Chimes from Lake Washington Sports and Spine on an earlier episode. And when you talk about athletes or people who are active, when they get an injury, the initial thought is, okay, I need to go see an orthopedic. And if they're not a surgical case, in many times they maybe they get unnecessary treatment, or the surgeon looks at them and says, "Well, why are you here?" Right. So I think you have chosen a path that's a little bit different. So you finish medical school, and for people who don't know, typically after medical school, most physicians do some sort of residency. So can you talk about that? Yeah. So, so basically, you do several years of training and then sort of a primary specialty. Um, for me, I started out in physical medicine and rehabilitation. Um, cause I really wanted to focus on the musculoskeletal system and, and movement and, 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 and sports injuries. Um, but what I very quickly discovered is, is that a lot of, um, a lot of sports medicine, maybe the majority of sports medicine is not necessarily orthopedic or surgical in nature. Um, and the example I always give the medical students, I tell them, you know, I'm giving them their first lecture and I say, I'll buy any of you guys a hot dog who can tell me my first week, um, as a sports doctor, what my most common diagnosis was. And, uh, it, it, and none of them ever guess it because it was a sexually transmitted disease. Um, and you know, some athletes went someplace they shouldn't have gone and did some things they shouldn't have done and, um, and came back with a surprise. Now it, at the, the orthopedic guy I was working with at the time just looks at me and goes, what do we do? You know, and, and my background as a primary care sports doctor, I'm going to say, you know, we're going to give them these antibiotics. We're going to find out who their contacts were and we're going to, uh, you know, and, and we're going to take care of this. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's the thing about sports medicine is that it's such a broad field. 
I mean, just this last week, I was treating somebody for hepatitis who picked it up on a, uh, um, you know, uh, on, on, a, on a trip abroad. So it, it's really um, a very, a very wide kind of net you have to throw it in sports medicine. Somebody's listening to this, or somebody maybe uh, is looking online for physician and sees, well, this person is a, f- a sports medicine specialist. Does somebody have to be a sports medicine person or an athlete to come see somebody like you? Or is it more along the lines, if they value moving and being active, they should maybe be seeking out somebody with a background similar to yours? No, if you move, you're an athlete. Um, You know, as I tell people, I see six-year-old gymnasts who are on the Olympic track. I see 80-year-old ladies who want to work in their garden. Um, I see, you know... I see moms who develop uh, tennis elbow from carrying around their babies. Um, we, we really, you know, if you have to do some kind of physical labor, labor, you belong in my office. And this is kind of what you said a few minutes ago. We're made to move and it doesn't have to be a workout. That's moving is natural. Yeah, exactly. You know, and that's, I mean, you know, I see a lot of firefighters, for example. You know, I call them my industrial athletes. Um, you know, it's like, okay, so maybe they're not out, you know, um, hitting guys on the football field, but they just carried, you know, uh, you know, 50, 50 pounds of hose up three flights of stairs with 50 pounds on their back. And, you know, it's, um, you know, so it, it's, it's the same thing. It's what we're built to do. It's, it's interesting. You say that about the firemen. I have a friend of mine and a colleague, Dr. Jay Dawes out in Colorado, who does research on tactical athletes. And he tell he likes to tell the story about the first time he went through the SWAT team training with, with the full load of equipment on him. Mm-hmm. And he said it was it was eye opening and enlightening because he realized that it was a heck of a lot harder than it looked to see these guys running around and scaling walls and doing things like that. Yeah, yeah, it gives you a totally different perspective uh, on you know what it takes to do a job, you know, and you suddenly realize there really isn't that much difference between an NFL lineman and a firefighter or a SWAT guy or a guy from the military or you know. Uh, so you graduate from medical school, you do your training, you're doing your sports medicine practice, and you have done an Ironman, as you said, during medical school, which maybe wasn't the wisest choice. But yeah. so, so, sometimes that's the nicest thing because it gives you empathy and understanding when you see patients or if you're working as a coach, clients. Yeah. I you know, This is a really important thing for me in my practice is that um, because I have such an experience with doing things myself and with just a wide range of athletes. Um, I can relate to patients in a way that a lot of other guys can't. It's like, you know, I tell them, I get it. Like I've been out there on the Ironman course at, you know, nine o'clock at night thinking, am I really going to finish this thing in the next three hours? Um, and by the same token, you know, I I have the experience of working with literally the fastest men alive, um, and and women. And so, you know, when, when, when really good athletes come in, I can say, you know, when, when I'm trying to, you know, I like to call it the come to Jesus talk. Um, you know, you've tried it your way. And you've gotten badly injured. Now let's try it my way. Um, you know, and, and I can point to these experiences and say, you know what, like you, you, you think that things need to be done a certain way, you know, but I've been to Kenya and Ethiopia. I've seen the way it's done there. I've been to Colorado Springs and, and, and all these different places where, you know, athletes are trained in these different ways that there's more than one way to, you know, to, to skin a cat. And, um, you know, you gotta, um, and you gotta respect that and find the best way for you not what you think is going to work because your sports hero did it that way. How was it that you transitioned or starting it in the coaching realm? Because from what you're describing, you went to medical school, came out with sports medicine. And at some point you 
started developing these mathematical equations and had a had and have quite an extensive coaching and consulting business. So how did that come about? Well, I started out life as a as a swim coach. Um, you know, it's sort of in terms of helping other people train um, at, at a summer camp in New Jersey, um, and, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I really had a lot of fun with it, um, and so it was just kind of natural for me. So as I was developing some of these tools to help my own training, the guys I was training with started saying, "Wow, you know, I think you could help this person," or "Hey, could you could you could you take a look at my training or whatever." And so I started applying these tools and, um, and, and no one is more surprised than me that they work. You know, it turns out I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really good at math, but, um, you know, you, you sit in college taking calculus thinking, when am I ever going to use this crap? You know? Um, and, and it turns out this is how you use it. Um, and, uh, and so I really try to encourage people in school about, you know, these classes that you think are never going to be useful. Like just wait a minute, <laughs> you, you never know when it's going to happen. And so, um, but really the big breakthrough for me is I started training sort of better and better athletes. But, um, in the, in 2007, um, Joanna Zeiger shows up at my front door. Who, well, not my front door. She calls me. Um, but she was an Olympian in 2000 in, in Sydney for triathlon, but she had a career with a lot of injuries. Um, but truly one of the most gifted physiological specimens I've ever seen. And, and she says to me, you know, I, you know, I want to, I want a world championship before I retire. I'm 38 years old. I've never had the results I think I could have. Um, would, you know, could you help me? And I said, I, you know, I'd like to try, right? This is going to be the big test. Is this really going to work or is this not going to work? Um, and so in analyzing your training, um, I said, okay, Joe, I know, you know, we're going to cut back your training by almost 50%. We're going to do more intensity. And she's looking at me like I'm insane. <laughs> you know, like I've been to the Olympics doing it this way and you want to do it all different. I'm like, you know, it, it's not a total 180. It's, you are turning 90 degrees to the right. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, cause we, so I was able to figure out the things that wouldn't, wouldn't work for her. And then in the 2008 season, she goes on to win, uh, almost every race that she entered. And then at the world championships at the half Ironman distance, she set the world record, um, and won the world championship at age 38. Um, and then everything just took off for me because then the British came calling, Hey, we heard about this stuff you've been working on. We think you could help us for the Olympics. Would you be interested in, in developing it for us? Other pro athletes coming to me. Hey, I think you could help me, you know? Um, and so really at one point I was probably doing more of that than I was of medicine. Um, you know, I'd, I'd see patients during the day and then come home and work till two o'clock in the morning on all this athlete stuff. Um, and they just kept doing better. And that was very gratifying for me as I just kind of kept it rolling. We're talking with Dr. Philip Skiba. He is a sports medicine physician and a coach and consultant for endurance athletes. We found out how he got to basically the starting point of coaching in his medical practice. We're going to come back in two weeks and delve more into how the coaching and the medical practice interact and how his coaching differs uh, potentially from other people and what he thinks are the keys for coaching and for athletes who are involved in movement. Dr. Skiba, I want to thank you for joining Moving to Live for part one of our interview. Thanks, Ben. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore 
MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.